0: came out with sets
1: of numbers, and I plotted them on pieces of paper.
2: Radio
0: waves,
2: radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused?
1: Radio waves,
2: radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves.
0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today's Thursday, the 26th of September, 2019 and we're going to start each episode with a community service announcement and a reminder that yes virginia we have a climate crisis on our hands see what you can do to help each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy optical astronomy space science or particle physics our fabulous featured guest today is dr shanoa tremblay a CSIRO fellow who is going to introduce us to dark magnetism and astrochemistry and tell us how she uses the ASCAP array to detect and identify complex molecules in space. And then we'll welcome back Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave for our regular observational and astrophotography session, What's Up Doc? And we'll finish up, as usual, with our Astrophys News highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and particle physics. So let's zoom over to Perth in Western Australia right now to speak with (whistles) Shanoa. Hello, Shanoa.
1: Hello, Brendan.
0: Today, we are very fortunate to be speaking with Dr. Shanoa Tremblay, who is a postdoctoral fellow in dark magnetism with the CSIRO and a member of the commissioning team for the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder ASCAP facility in remote Western Australia. Welcome, Shanoa.
1: Thank you, Brendan, for inviting me to speak with you today.
0: A pleasure. So, before we talk about astrochemistry and dark magnetism, can you tell us where you grew up, please, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place?
1: Sure, I grew up in a rural part of the northeastern part of the United States. My family owned a farm, and I went to school with a small number of local school children. Uh, My interest in science actually started with an interest in maths. When my grandfather and I would be out working in the fields together, he used to quiz me on math problems and challenged me to do them in my head. My interest in science didn't really start until high school when I could start taking some dedicated classes in chemistry and physics. But even then, it wasn't until university where I got the courage to actually go into science. But there was also something else there is that in the town next door, there was a NASA rocket that was sitting in the middle of town. And it always fascinated me of how in this tiny little town did this NASA rocket show up and how could I explore space myself?
0: Oh, what a great inspiration. So tell us a little bit about those school days and your early ambitions. And did those ambitions change?
1: I grew up. In a really small town, so it was only around 600 people. So, in the early years, I was involved in classrooms where multiple age groups were in a single classroom. Uh, Primary school was year ones through eight, and high school was years nine through 12. Uh, My enjoyment of math continued through high school. And when it was time to decide what to do next, I wanted to make sure that I got a degree that allowed me to be independent. And I really wanted to go out and explore the world and find a way of doing so. And I knew maths would be at the center of that, but I actually started off in the university with a degree in accounting and business. I thought that with my background that that seemed like a reasonable way to go, but I actually wasn't enjoying it at all. And my first semester of school, my roommate was studying a chemistry and biology degree. And I realized I was spending more time helping her with her homework with what I had learned in my high school classes than I was actually doing my own homework. Some friends of mine convinced me to go into science and said, why don't you just go and do this? And it took some convincing, but I eventually did get into it and I absolutely loved it. And that's kind of where I've ended up today.
0: Fantastic. So after your successful school career, you completed your undergraduate degree in New Hampshire with a Bachelor of Arts in Chemistry, with minors in Maths, Sociology and Cultural Anthropology. After working in the northeast in pharmaceutical science for six years, you then moved way down to the University of New Mexico for more master's level studies in maths and physics and radio astronomy, and then some time as a research associate at UNM, assisting in building and testing their first station of the Long Wavelength Array Telescope. Now, is that LWA operating now? And at what stage did you know about the Murchison Widefield Array?
1: Yeah, my husband and I moved to New Mexico when he got into a PhD program there at the University of New Mexico. And sometime between actually finishing my undergraduate degree and moving to New Mexico, I was introduced to the idea of studying chemistry in space. I thought this was fantastic. Not only could I do chemistry in the lab, but You could study the chemical reactions that were happening in space with no human interaction whatsoever. So I spent some time researching what I would need to do to do that type of work. And it came down to being able to do either physical chemistry or chemical physics. Now, while we were in New Mexico, the company I worked for underwent a program where they encouraged people to go out and extend their learning, go out and and do more education, and so I applied at the University of New Mexico for what they called a degree to graduate, which meant that I could go and take any classes that I wanted to. And I thought this was a perfect segue to be able to explore this idea of studying space and studying the chemistry within space. So I signed up for doing classes at the University of New Mexico and at the time, I was working in a laboratory where I was doing a lot of instrument development and engineering, as well as actual chemistry itself. And so I thought this was a good synergy with working with telescopes. And so that's how I ended up working with the LWA. So the LWA is in New Mexico. It's on a site of another telescope called the Very Large Array. Yep. And it now operates two stations within New Mexico. And it's got a goal of placing multiple stations about 50 independent clusters of antennas to be all linked together in software, similar to what we do with the MWA. Now, I hadn't actually heard of the MWA, the Murchison-Widefield Array, until I actually moved to Australia.
0: That's fantastic. I'm sitting here with a huge smile on my face hearing about that. So then you moved down under from Albuquerque to Western Australia, where you worked as an R&D chemist for The minerals industry, and also as a research associate at Curtin University, studying high mass star formation. And then you started working with the new low frequency radio telescope, the Murchison Wide Field Array, as we've spoken about, to study the astrochemistry of stars and star forming regions. That's a fantastic journey. And how did that big move to Western Australia come about?
1: So once my husband finished his PhD, he actually got a postdoc at Curtin University here in Western Australia. Since we're making such a huge move and there was a lot of life changes involved, I thought I might take it as an opportunity to go back to school full-time myself to explore more about this chemical physics. And at the time, though, when we first got here, I wasn't able to get an international scholarship, even though I did get into the program. And so instead, I decided to take a job working within the minerals industry, helping them start a brand new laboratory here in Perth, Western Australia. Once my family got a permanent resident visa, I published my first paper on high mass stars, and I got a full PhD scholarship to work with the Wide Field Array to study these chemical reactions around stars.
0: That's sensational. So then, at Curtin, you completed your doctorate, and your PhD thesis title was "A Search for Molecules at Low Frequencies with the MWA," which, among other things, resulted in you producing the world's first detection of molecules below 700 megahertz and proof that high-mass stars may form in isolation. Now. The MWA is the Murchison Wide Field Array, right? A bunch of spider antennas out in the desert. Can you tell us a bit about this array and how you collect and interrogate the data to identify different molecules and what particular molecules did you find?
1: Sure. Uh, We study molecules through a technique called spectroscopy. In general, spectroscopy is the study of the interaction of matter and light. And we see this every day when sunshine shines through our windows and shows a rainbow on the floor or in your wall. That rainbow of colors forms because our window separates the white light from the sun into the different wavelengths of visible light we can see. Now, by using instruments, whether in the lab or a radio telescope, we can look for these small changes in wavelength even to the degree where we can see shades of color. When molecules are spinning in space, they're bombarded with the energy from nearby stars. And each time those molecules are hit with energy, it changes the speed. And it produces a signal that can travel through space and hit our telescopes. Each molecule gives off an energy that is unique to itself, like a fingerprint, so we can identify what it is. The MWA is one of these telescopes, and it operates in the same wavelengths as your car radio and your digital TV, in the frequency range of about 70 megahertz to about 300 megahertz, where we get to tune it kind of like you would an old-style car radio. We can spread these groupings of the little antennas apart over five kilometers of the desert, and we do this because it's much easier to build a bunch of small groupings and combine them together with software to mimic a much larger telescope than it is to build one extremely large telescope. Now, during my thesis work, we found some simple molecules like nitric oxide and more complicated ones like formaldehyde. And the prediction of studying molecules at these really low radio frequencies is that we may be able to detect the very complex molecules that are the building blocks of life, in really cold regions of space. And my work was the foundation of this type of study.
0: Wow, that's just amazing. Your PhD is huge, and it would take weeks to go through it in detail. I've looked at quite a few PhDs, and your thesis looks like about four PhDs rolled into one, know, Can you tell us about another part of your doctoral research which led to you providing proof that high-mass stars can form in isolation. What are high-mass stars and are they lonely?
1: Sure. Yeah, my PhD was a combination of a lot of different things. I think it may have been called uh, small molecules, large atoms, aliens, and (laughs) lonely stars. (laughs) And the lonely stars part is when we survey the stars within our galaxy and other galaxies, we find they come in different sizes. Now, some are smaller than our own sun, but they can get up to about 100 times the size of our sun. Now, from observations, we have found that almost all stars start off life about the same sort of way. But what makes them different? Why do some of them get so big? This is one of the big questions in astronomy Mm -hmm. today. When I started my work, there were two main competing ideas of how this might happen. How can a star form 10 times the size of our own sun or even larger? Now, one said that all the gas in the dust sits in a cluster of stars and all of the little stars funnel it into a central really big star, feeding it so it can grow really fast and really big, kind of like a big food source. Now, the other idea was that for some reason, The gas in the dust around a star is highly pressurized, more than normal. And so the star itself can eat up really quickly and also grow really big. Now, one of the differentiations between these two ideas is that one requires a star to be born with other stars present and one does not. So this project, I went out to see if we could find a set of criteria that would allow us to determine whether a star was born all by itself or in a cluster of other stars. Now, combining data from telescopes all around the world using ultraviolet, infrared, and radio light, we worked out an algorithm that can help us find these lonely, high-mass stars. And by using it, we think we found one. This is exciting because a lot of the chemicals within our galaxy come from these really large stars. In particular, when they explode and die, they create very large atoms that we can find here on Earth. So if they can form by themselves, even sometimes, that means it changes our estimates of the chemical arrangement within a galaxy.
0: That is so exciting. Wow. So obviously your chemistry background has been a huge asset to you and you've done a lot of analytical and project management work with labs supporting the pharma and minerals industries, but now your focus is obviously astrochemistry, and that brings us to this year, where you now have your postdoc with the CSIRO, where you'll be using the SKA precursor, the ASCAP telescopes, to conduct observations of our galaxy at seven twenty four megahertz to detect the polarimetric properties of carbine in the Milky Way. Can you pull that apart for us? This is amazing stuff, Shinoa. Is carbine a particular molecule or a class of molecules? And what's so special about carbines? And why seven twenty four megahertz? And What is polarisation and why is polarisation such a powerful tool for astrochemistry in particular?
1: Yeah, I talked a little bit about stars and how we can use telescopes to look at chemistry of stars. Carbine is a category of molecules and the simplest is CH, a carbon and hydrogen atom attached to each other. This was the first interstellar molecule ever detected in 1937 and has been used to study a wide range of stellar environments. That is because it can be found at many different wavelengths with different styles of telescopes and is found in both diffuse and dense gas. But the study of CH at 724 megahertz is special because it's very sensitive to magnetic fields. This is where polarization comes in. Let's think of a wave of light being similar to the vibrations of a guitar string. Depending on the direction we pluck the string, it will change the direction the string will vibrate. If we pluck the string up, then the vibration of the string will follow the fretboard. If we pluck it away from the sound hole, the string will vibrate and hit the fretboard. Now, since the string is connected by two points, The string can vibrate in all sorts of directions at the same time, like up and down and left and right. And when light does this, we call it a transverse wave. A transverse wave is unpolarized, and your light bulbs at home produce unpolarized light. Polarized light is when instead light is traveling, instead of it traveling in multiple orientations, it can travel only in one orientation, or one plane, like along your fretboard, in our example. ASCAP is built to allow us to detect and separate the light that is polarized and unpolarized. One of the ways lights can go from being polarized, unpolarized in multiple, traveling in multiple orientations to traveling in a single orientation is due to magnetic fields. So by studying the properties of the polarized light, we can study the magnetic fields of faraway objects in space. And this is true not just for molecules. So in general, I plan on using ASCAP to study magnetic fields by looking at the ratio of light traveling in multiple directions to light that's traveling in a single direction by observing the simple molecule.
0: Wow, thanks for that. Unbelievable. Now, will your work be part of GASPAC spectral line survey? Can you tell us about GASCAP and the spectral line survey?
1: Yeah, GASCAP stands for the Galactic Australian SK Pathfinder Survey, and it aims to study a hydrogen and hydroxyl molecule in the Milky Way and Magellanic clouds, which are our nearest galactic neighbors. The aim is to show quantitatively the relative importance of different mechanisms and how they influence how galaxies evolve, including the formation of interstellar clouds and how the matter moves between different parts of the central galaxy, so our own galaxy itself. Um, The work I'm doing with CH is separate from this, but a lot of what I'm learning in processing the data from ASCAP is also working towards understanding how we process the data for the gas cap survey.
0: What a challenge that's going to be with those huge data rates. Now, you're currently the CSIRO postdoctoral fellow in dark magnetism, and you referred to magnetism earlier. And we've spoken about dark energy and dark matter before, but dark magnetism is a new one for us here. Can you tell us about dark magnetism, please?
1: Yeah, it's actually a play on words. It's not as complicated as dark energy or dark matter. The idea here is that they're dark clouds. Now, stars are born inside of big, dusty clouds. Yep. And when we look at these clouds with optical light or optical telescopes at night or with a good digital camera, They can appear dark or black because the visible light cannot pass through them. So that's where the word dark comes from. But the radio waves are not blocked by these dense clouds of dust and gas. And so by using radio telescopes like ASCAP, we can study the magnetic fields of baby stars in these optically dark clouds. This is what's meant by dark magnetism.
0: That's sensational. That's just lovely. Thank you. So let's also mention a theme we keep coming back to in this show and that is data management for modern instruments that are generating petabytes and exabytes of data. Is our ASCAP and MWA data being archived? Does anyone use real-time data and how do you as an individual researcher access and manage your ASCAP data, for example?
1: So the data challenges are different for both the Murchison Widefield Array and the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder. And the data handling is is a little bit different. For the moment, the MWA is storing a lot of the data at the Posi Supercomputing Center here in Perth. And it can be accessed through the Murchison Wide Field Array All Sky Virtual Observatory by anybody that decides to register. The data are open access and most of the tools to analyze the data are also open access. So somebody just has to be particularly keen to get the data. Now, ASCAP is different. It's designed as more of a survey instrument with very specific science teams and services like GASCAP. Yep. The ASCAP data are also stored at the POSI Supercomputing Center, but the data are processed to the operations team and the scientists access the final data products through a CSIRO data access portal. Yep. And that's all still relatively new in undergoing development. So both telescopes are facilities that are only been operating for roughly three to five years. Yep. So they don't have a lot of the background that some of the other facilities around the world are using to be able to do real-time data processing, we just don't know enough yet. But we are learning, we are heading towards that, and that is the idea towards using these telescopes to help us learn about the square kilometer array that will be built here in Western Australia. For me, since I'm on the commissioning team, I can access and process the ASCAP data through using the POSI supercomputers. But maintaining all the data products that we create is not feasible. So you have to make choices of what you keep, what you remove based on your science goals. And sometimes those choices can be really hard.
0: Oh, I can imagine, yes. So you've also done a lot of outreach work as part of Science Week. It was all over the internet. Can you tell us about your favourite outreach work and why you do it, please, Shanoa?
1: I really enjoy working with the community and children, and I really enjoy looking at people's excitement and their curiosity of science. It helps reinvigorate why I like science. Sometimes when you're sitting at a computer, you can lose sight of that. I like sharing my knowledge and what I have learned. I don't just do science as a job. I really do enjoy it. It's something that I do for fun as much as work. I've had a few opportunities to work with schools from year four students through high school, and I really like these experiences. I like the wide range of questions and inquisitive minds that I get from the students, and I often get to learn something from the experience as well.
0: Fantastic. And the clarity of the way you explain the use of these instruments and the enthusiasm is shining through. Now, while we are on outreach for Australian listeners, I see Cass is holding the 2019 Radio Astronomy School at the Australia Telescope Compact Array, the ATCA Array up at narrabai I went up and visited that. It's sensational. And that's on from Monday, the 30th of September to Friday, the 4th of October. And you're the contact person. Tell us more about this radio telescope school.
1: Sure. The CSIRO run a radio astronomy school every two years to help get early career researchers and students started down their journey of working with radio astronomy data. So it's designed with a series of lectures, workshops, and social events. So you're not only learning, but get to network with potential peers in the future and collaborators.
0: That's awesome. I think I'll sign up for that in two years' time. Okay, thank you. Now, the microphone is all yours, and you have the opportunity now to give us your favorite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science, or science denialism, or Science career paths, or your passion for research, or our quest for new knowledge. The mics, all yours, Shanoa.
1: Thank you. I saw a quote recently by Sarah Seeger, who is an astrophysicist at MIT. And it said, being a scientist is like being an explorer. You have this immense curiosity, this stubbornness, this resolute will that you will go forward no matter what other people say. This really resonated with me. I often see that students, when I'm out there, think that particular characteristics are required in order to be in the STEM professions, that science, technology, engineering, or mathematics. And that maybe only smart kids, or maybe just boys, or maybe some other aspects. But in reality, it takes a lot of curiosity and drive to explore the world and the universe. And that's really all it takes to be a scientist at some level. I was not a straight-A student. I struggled in school, in particular in primary school. But when I found something I really enjoyed, first chemistry and then astronomy, I fought really hard to get my degrees and to get to the career of where I am. So my message to kids during outreach events is that you will have amazing access to the world now with the Internet. It takes a degree of scepticism to know what's right and what's wrong to learn, but it gives you an amazing opportunity to explore the world, and that's what it will really take to go into STEM careers.
0: What an inspiration. Thank you so much. Now, is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on?
1: It seems every day in the news now there's new scientific discoveries. From the detections of gravitational waves to this year imaging the first black hole, to even this year researchers from the Max Born Institute in Berlin made a film of a molecule rotating by using laser light. In our own backyard, discoveries are also being made with ASCAP and MWA as we view the universe in new ways. I think it's a really exciting time for science, and I'm really looking forward to what's going to be coming out over the coming months.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shanoa Tremblay. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you especially for your time and your busy schedule. And we'll encourage all listeners to follow Shanoa on Twitter. She does fabulous posts as at Shanoa Chem, C-H-E-N-O-A-C-H-E-M. Thank you, Shanoa.
1: Thank you, Brandon.
0: It's been wonderful. Okay, let's cross over to Adelaide now to catch up with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Ian.
3: Hello, Brandon.
0: Great to be speaking with you again. Can you tell us what's up in the sky for the next two weeks?
3: Well, what's up in the sky for the next two weeks is our old friends Jupiter and Saturn are still forming vision in the sky, giving us something that's good to look at, especially with telescopes. And those of you watching the western horizon will be noticing Mercury creeping above it, and then Venus. And the next uh, two weeks will give us a very good uh, look at these uh, bright planets. Uh, they've also been uh, sneaking up on the bright star speaker. Now, although speaker is quite bright, it can be a little bit hard to see in the twilight. And really, for the best views of uh, Venus at the moment, you should be looking half an hour after sunset and somewhere which has a nice level horizon without too many trees or buildings in the way. The best place to be looking at the moment is uh, somewhere like the ocean or the desert which is nice and flat, but even if uh, you aren't living somewhere uh, with a really flat horizon. Now, what we'll be watching over the next few weeks is Mercury creeping up towards the bright star speaker and uh, on the nights of the 27th or evenings of the 27th, 28th and 9th of 30th, we'll see, and we're going to be coming closer and closer to speaker. You might need a pair of binoculars to really see um, speaker Easily in the twilight, but Mercury is getting brighter and should be. It's half an hour after sunset. It should be uh, relatively easy. It's now quite high above the horizon. Venus is looking a, further, a bit further down in the uh, in the Merc, but still it should be bright enough to uh, pick up around about half an hour after sunset. Mercury is now now high enough above the horizon that you can easily see it up to 45 minutes after sunset. Early uh, to the horizon Mercury. On the 30th of September, Venus, Mercury, and Speaker are joined by the thin crescent moon. So, a very good opportunity for some nice astrophotography as the thin crescent moon, Mercury, speaker and Venus form a trapezium, if you like. I'm not sure if trapeziums are really exciting in your mind, but it'll be easy to see the three of them forming a nice little. Asteroids in the evening sky. The moon then heads off towards uh, Jupiter, and on October the 4th, we see a in moon close to Jupiter. But we also see a triangle by Bike Star Speaker, Venus moving, It's getting upper away from Speaker, getting higher in the evening sky, much easier to see. Uh, Venus is also getting higher, much easier to see. So you should see a quite nice triangle of Mercury, Venus and Spica in the evening sky, which will make for a, a nice way to round off this full night's skywatch.
0: Something to look forward to.
3: It's very, I think it was really easy to see. It's not far from the bright red star Antares and is, of course, currently, aside from the Moon, uh, the brightest object in the sky. It might be for very long, though, as Venus has been further it'll become brighter and brighter. But uh, Jupiter, it's uh, right next to the uh, constellation of Scorpius, the Scorpion. Uh, very nice to look at in the evening sky. Uh, in binoculars, uh, of course, you'll be able to see dance of the uh, moon, and there'll be a few interesting moon events coming up as the moons go across space of uh, Jupiter. That, of course, is a telescopic view. And um, the great red spot, which we're the about, um, disintegrating, is still going strong. So if you've got a more nice sized telescope, you'll be able to watch the Great Red Spot coming through and worthwhile watching over the uh, coming nights. Jupiter's uh, now setting earlier and earlier in the evening, setting around about midnight, but that will give you plenty of time between total dark and when Jupiter gets too low to, to the horizon to have a really good view of uh, Jupiter telescopically. The next brightest object we encounter is Saturn and Saturn is very worthwhile philosophically still, the rings are still uh, nicely presented to us and if you've got a moderate field of view in your eyepiece you should be able to see the moon Titan. Saturn is within binocular distance of a number of interesting clusters again not stopped too far from the, the triplet or the lagoon nebula so in binoculars if you sweep around from Saturn itself with, with binoculars will, will look like a um, an ovoid. You won't be able to see any details but you'll be able to sweep around and see some very nice nebula and clusters close by, or even under severe skies. So, that's it for the planets in the moment. You do a skies sweep from close to Antares up past Saturn uh, over to the Southern Cross, and get some really nice your uh, clusters that way. And there'll be lots of other interesting clusters and nebula as you'll pick up as you sweep across.
0: Fantastic. So the message is once again, step outside and look up at it.
3: Step outside and look up. So oh, that's what's happening in the sky over the next quarter.
0: Very good, Ian. Thank you very much. So do you have a tangent for us for this episode?
3: I have so many tangents, but I think for this tangent I'm going to go for Tardigrades on the moon. This actually occurred a little while ago, but, uh, the Israeli lander was meant to not only land and, and do science, but it also had a preservation pack. So, uh, it had, it has a number of materials that were supposed to be backups of things on Earth. And one of the things they had along was a group of dehydrated tardigrades. So the, when the Bereshit lander, crash landing rather than a soft landing, the tardigrades got spilled out of the Moon. And tardigrades are really quite robust in their dehydrated state. They are able to survive for quite some time in a very hostile environment. So they were uh, a little bit worried that that we had contaminated the Moon with tardigrades. However, uh, it's probable that the tardigrades were already there. Now. We know that, uh, when meteorites impact the moon, uh, or Mars, fragments of both moon and Mars are objectively toward, it, and some of them eventually end up on Earth. Uh, for example, we have tectites from the moon, glassy meteor- meteorites that end up on Earth's surface. We have a number of, uh, Mars meteorites that have been found in Antarctica and so on. So, uh, but getting material from either in space and on the surface of other planets happens quite often. And so, similarly, meteorites impacting Earth can uh, send a projector, which then gets to orbit and then can end up on both the Moon and Mars. In fact, the Apollo missions found an Earth meteorite on the Moon during its originations. So, it's quite uh, likely that these things can carry uh, not just um, rocks uh, and dust onto the Moon, but they may also carry organic matter. And particular microbes and cargo Now, we've got cartography to get there in any survival form. We know that the tongue form is very uh, can survive it survive in suspended animation for quite a long time, but does not need water to revive it. So what they they had a look at this and they looking at first when uh, the when the meteorite impacts Earth and sprays this material of the space would the tardigrades survive the impact? I mean, after all, you're hitting these uh, rocks to, to a reasonable temperature and then exiting through the atmosphere. And then they have to cross the vacuum of space. So tardigrades may be able to survive a vacuum, but will they survive vacuum and high radiation? And once they get to the moon, they're going to impact it at a fairly fairly clip. Of the moon, of course, not having an atmosphere to slow the material down people would just slam straight into the moon at a fairly decent clip, possibly vaporising material. So although we, uh, earth rocks may make it to the moon probably reasonably often, uh, the question is whether or not uh or other microbial uh would make it to the moon in a way that would allow them to survive. Uh, and so people went through and did a lot of calculations uh, about how hot the ejector would get, how deeply buried inside the material that would have to be to survive, uh, the heating of the initial impact, the uh, amount of radiation uh, that uh, they would encounter on the Earth moon trip, and the heating of the, uh, of the impact. And they came to the conclusion that, yes, yes indeed, it's entirely possible that uh, the uh, ejector, whether it be some organisms on the, uh, on the Earth uh, meteorites, which would not only survive uh, being blasted into space, but also survive landing on the Moon. You'd need to have a moderately large piece of material where organisms would survive inside and then uh, be ejected from the impact. But it's entirely possible that tardigrades have been on the Moon for some millions of years. And, and that the bearish lander was just adding a few more but, uh, tardigrades to the already existing tardigrades on the surface. Of course, refining them, uh, uh, uh is another thing entirely, but it, it does mean that, that when we're looking for life on Mars, uh, we have to make sure that we're not seeing contamination from bacteria or tardigrades inhabiting, um, rocks that have been, in deep uh, space of some time.
0: That's amazing. Life is pretty persistent and it seems could even be ubiquitous.
3: Life is not only ubiquitous but it's also really tough, as you can imagine. As I said, the tardigrades uh, they have, you have to be uh, very high-bodied in their time um, state and you're not particularly likely to, uh, they're not particularly likely to be perambulating around on the moon given the, uh, the lack of uh, surface watering or. Uh, on the Moon, or even it's availability in deep craters where there is actually surface ice on the Moon, but it's surface ice in the dark you know, craters. So, they're unlikely to be granulating around, but they're also likely to be there somewhere along with some other possible microbes.
0: Well, it's very good to hear that life is pretty tough, Ian, because I think we're going to need it over the next few decades.
3: Yeah, it's very good to hear that life is very tough, but, you know... If we find tardigrades on Mars, you know that they'd probably come from Earth. And one possibility for life, life on Venus is not on Venus itself, but they might be the sulfur bacteria living in the upper layers of the atmosphere where it's cool enough that the organisms uh, will not be baked to um, get, but also deep enough so they're not sterilized by light like the sun. So we need to think very carefully about what sorts of things we we are seeing, and not just thinking about the it lands on the planet scenario. There are other ways of of uh, picking up all this and communicating all of them to other planets. So it's a very interesting it's a very interesting conundrum. Right? Given that life is, is kind of tough, how do we make sure that we we don't take life to other planets. And how do we know that if we do find not by other planets, it hasn't been spread there from Earth?
0: Indeed, and I'll just be one of a, of a lot of people who will be waiting with bated breath to see what is discovered in the mission to Enceladus.
3: Yeah, <laughs> you won't be the only one, let me tell you. Yeah, we're all, we're all waiting for that. It's so that, that, one of the interesting missions that have been greenwriters along with Dragon flies on Titan. Mm. So, what interesting few decades are uh, coming up uh, in terms of um, in terms of space uh,
0: space research. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much again, Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave.
3: It was my pleasure, Brandon. It was my pleasure. If I can encourage more people to look up. All the
0: better. <laughs> Excellent. See ya.
3: See so, you later. Know,
0: And here's the Astrophys News for Thursday the 26th of September. This first story is from Nature. Dated 11 September 2019, giant bubbles spotted around Milky Way's black hole. The first major result from South Africa's pioneering Meerkat radio telescope reveals remnants of energetic explosions at the galaxy's centre. Written by David Castelvecci. In its first major result, just over a year after its inauguration, Meerkat has discovered two giant radio bubbles above and below the central region of the Milky Way. The feature stretches over a total of 1400 light years, about 5% of a distance between our solar system and the galaxy's centre. The bubbles are gas structures that can be observed because electrons stirring inside them produce radio waves as they are accelerated by magnetic fields. This activity suggests that the bubbles are the remnants of an energetic eruption of hot gas several million years ago, say the authors of a paper describing the features. One possible explanation is that a supermassive black hole at the centre of the galaxy underwent a period of intense matter-gobbling that created the outburst. Another could be a starburst event, the near-simultaneous formation and subsequent fiery death of around a 100 large stars. The shock waves of their explosions could have combined to blow a hole through the thick interstellar matter of the galaxy's central region. Oliver Poole, an astronomer at the ESO in Garching, Germany, says that both starburst and black hole activity might have been at play, even reinforcing each other. And researchers know of a starburst that took place in the region about 7 million years ago. It's intriguing to relate the radio bubble to this star formation event, he says. The Meerkat radio telescope is a precursor to what will be, in combination with Australia's MWA and ASCAP telescopes, the world's largest radio telescope, the Square Kilometre Array. They discovered these bubbles when they created an image of the Galactic Centre to celebrate the observatory's inauguration and test drive their brand new facility in April 2018. Typically, it takes years for researchers to get a new observatory to work properly and to produce science with it. But with both the MWA, ASCAP, and Meerkat, they were stunned at how smoothly things went. The bubbles could also solve an old puzzle in radio astronomy. It's possible that the electrons accelerating inside them are the source of bright filaments of matter Tens of parsecs long that stretch out of the galactic center, first seen in 1984. Even larger bubbles towering over those seen by Meerkat could have been seen in the gamma-ray part of the spectrum and could have a similar origin. And we'll finish up with a bit of popular culture the movie Ad Astra has just been released, and there's a lot of commentary in the astronomy blogosphere about all the wrong things in the movie. Well, of course, movies get it wrong. Movies aren't reality, it's entertainment. So don't worry too much about the things it gets wrong. Just go and watch the movie and damn well enjoy it. We'll see you in two weeks.
2: Radio Wave.